Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Not long after my great-grandfather John Kolodziej, otherwise known as John Kolodzway in Polish, um, came to Ellis Island, they chopped the Z, uh, D-Z-I-E-J off his name. Um, they replaced it with a simple G-E, John Kolodzi. I do not know if, upon his arrival, he was able to see on Lady Liberty at the base, chiseled into stone, the, the poem, The New Colossus by Emma Lazarus. Keep, ancient lands, your storied pomp, it read. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. That is beautiful. It's a very, that's only half of it. The whole poem is so moving. This idea of America is something that we should hold on to. And whether he saw it or not, John Kologi came for the same reason tens of millions of immigrants over these decades came, the dream of America. A place where anyone can work hard enough and rise from the muddy streets of Warsaw or wherever. The American dream is a beautiful idea. There's also this sobering reality that for many it has remained just that, an elusive idea, not a reality. I mean, consider those who lived here before us in these lands, or those who were brought here by force, by people that looked like me, or those who came and worked themselves to death trying to attain the dream of America. Nevertheless, the, the, the dream itself, the idea itself is beautiful and it has indelibly marked us as American people. It shaped our souls to think that basically, if I could sum it up, the way up is work. The way up is work. And there's, of course, some truth in that. I mean, it's good to work hard. It's good to build businesses. It's good, it's good to use diligence and commitment to, to produce good things. And yet, spiritually speaking, the way up is not work. The church tells a very different story. Liturgically, this story began several months ago on Christ the King Sunday. On Christ the King Sunday, we read about the crucifixion. Why is that? Because our king was crucified on purpose. And then we rolled into Advent and Christmas, where we remember that our king chooses to be born into the stench of animal waste and likely had a food trough for his crib. And this morning, we've just read how this downward trajectory of Christ the King leads us to the shores of the Jordan River to witness the baptism of Jesus. Now, on these muddy banks of the Jordan, we see that the way up is not work. The way up is down. The Jordan River is is my namesake, and so my name literally means to descend or flow down, which is kind of a bummer. (laughs) I used to think, well, maybe that's why I'm kind of melancholy. I don't know. Um, But now I see it. I see it now as, as the goal, actually of the spiritual life. I want to look at three ways that Jesus' baptism tells us that the way up is actually down. First, his baptism means that we have solidarity with God. So we're in Matthew 3, beginning in verse 13 and 14. If you want to follow along, you have Bibles in front of you or on your phones. Um, Matthew 3, beginning in verse 13. We read that John is, is taken back when Jesus comes to be baptized. I need to be baptized by you, he says, and yet you come to me? John is incredulous. 
And we, I think, can forgive John for being a bit bewildered. John knew Jesus' identity as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, the Messiah long promised. So John says to Jesus, I can't baptize you. In verse 11, he had just said, I am not worthy to carry this man's sandals. In other words, I am not even worthy to be his slave. And John is right. In the the presence of of the thrice holy God, holy, holy, holy God, he is unworthy to carry even his sandals. And I wonder if John looked down at Jesus' feet as he mentioned his sandals. I mean, perhaps he saw the muddy sandals of Emmanuel squishing into the saturated edges of the Jordan River. An image that maybe foreshadowed what was to come. Jesus responds to John's resistance in verse 15. He says, John, let it be so for now, for it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, John, it's all part of God's saving plan and finally, John relents or, or, or consents, some of the versions. And that word is, sort of implies that there had been an argument. This wasn't like a quick little, th- this was like a debate that happened. And finally, John's like, all right, Jesus, fine, fine, okay, I relent. You get John's hesitancy, don't you? I mean, we learn from the context that this baptism, John the Baptist baptism, represented what? It represented repentance of sin. And here is Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God, coming to say, I want to undergo your baptism. What's the deal? Why? Jesus was baptized, first and foremost, to make our problem of sin and death his problem, to so find solidarity with his people, to make our problem his problem. Now, I I don't know if I can actually recommend watching Stranger Things to you. Um, Maybe not. If you haven't already seen it, it gets very gnarly (laughs) by the fourth season, like a lot of moments where Jenny and I were just like... um, but Jenny and I got sucked in by the, by the 80s nostalgia of the first season, and so we just endured season four. Uh, the story centers largely around this teenage girl named Max, who is targeted by the, the evil Vecna. What a great name, Vecna. Uh, what I found so realistically insidious about Vecna was his strategy of trying to, to infiltrate his victims' minds. Not so much just to scare them, but to shame them, to shame them. Conjuring vivid memories of, of characters' lowest moments, their, their, their secret sins, their darkest moments to bring shame to them. Writing for Think Christian, Julia uh, York, she writes this, Vecna's strategy, the crux of his villainy, turns on his ability to implicate his victims in their struggles and convince them that they do not deserve freedom from their burdens. So Max seeks salvation in music. She's, she's always seen with headphones around her neck or on her ears. Um, her headphones are blasting constantly on repeat. Kate Bush is running up that hill. And this song sort of grounds her in reality. And it helps her to resist Vecna's advances. And the heart of this song, if you pay attention to the lyrics, this song topped the worldwide charts for two or three weeks this year because of it being on Stranger Things. The heart of this song is a prayer of longing. The chorus goes like this. If I only could, I'd make a deal with God and I'd get him to swap our places. If I only could, I'd make a deal with God and I'd get him to swap our places. Why was Jesus baptized? In a sense, to swap our places. Leon Morris put it this way, Jesus might well have been up there in front, standing with John, calling on sinners to repent. Instead, he came down there to the waters with the sinners affirming his solidarity with them, making himself one with the sinners in the process of salvation that he would in due course accomplish. Or, Paul put it this, in Romans, put it this way in Romans uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake 
he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the swap. The solidarity with God. And this does two seemingly contradictory things at once. It obliterates, on the one hand, shame. On the other hand, it gives us true humility. So on the one hand, this swap means that when the enemy of our souls, the true Vecna, comes and whispers shame to you, we only need to remember that we've been baptized, that we are in Christ, that the Lord made your sins his and made his righteousness yours. That's justification. And now Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this music grounds us in reality. You are not defined by your worst mistakes. You are not defined by your worst failures. You are not defined by your secret sins or the things done to you. You are defined by God's never-stopping, never-ending, always-and-forever love for you, as seen in this great exchange. So that's on the one hand, obliterate shame. On the other hand, don't get a big head about it. The swap means the gospel is not that you are faithful enough, that you are good enough. The gospel is that God is faithful in your place, that he is good enough. I mean, he's coming into the Jordan River. Where, what happened there? The Israelites came out of their wanderings and went through the Jordan River, and they went on into failure, did they not? Jesus is not coming to say, you failures. He's coming to say, I'm going to rewalk your steps and be faithful where you were not. God is faithful in your place. That's the gospel. Now, if you are not gradually becoming more faithful, the solution isn't work harder, work your way up, feel ashamed. No, no, no. The gospel erases shame. We've just seen that. The solution is down. The way up is down. Humble yourself. Do you not know that you have been baptized into his death? The downward movement of baptism is a declaration that I am not faithful enough. I am dead without rescue. I will drown unless someone pulls me up out of these waters. And for souls that have been marked by the way up is work mentality, uh, this is a real barrier because it's just so humbling. It's so humbling. You know, so by all means, we work hard at what God has given us to do, but don't deceive yourself into thinking that working your way up in the world is the same thing as working your way up in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom, you are to work your way down into ever-increasing humility and awareness that you have not earned anything. It's not about your faithfulness. It's about his faithfulness. All that you have is a gift from God. But the movement of baptism isn't only down, is it? You have heard it said, what comes up must come down. But I tell you, in the kingdom of God, what goes down must come up. Because Jesus' baptism means we are also saved and sanctified by God. The Bible says that through faith and baptism, this mysterious thing happens. We are united to Christ. For example, Romans 6, 4, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. So after John relents and baptizes Jesus, here's what happens. Matthew 3, 16, Jesus went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. Now, students, where else in the scriptures do we read about the heavens and the Spirit of God hovering over the waters? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the waters of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering, and some Jewish translations say, like a dove, over the face of the waters. 
So in Matthew's account of Jesus' baptism and in Genesis 1, we have all these things. Heavens, waters, spirit, dove. And then last of all, what do we have? God's voice. Genesis 1, 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Matthew 3, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It's as if in this creation or recreation story, the literal son has become the light of the beloved son. And so elsewhere in the New Testament, we read things like this. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. Or 2 Corinthians 4, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts. So the descent of the Spirit upon Jesus is first and foremost, it is his empowerment into ministry. It is his revelation as the Son of God. It's his revelation as the Messiah. But read in view of, of our own baptism, when we repent and believe and are baptized, heaven opens to us. The Spirit descends on us. And as many can attest, something happens. A story of recreation happens within us. It's as if the warming and calming morning light dawns over the maybe previously stormy seas of the soul. And in our baptism, we too are made new creations like Jesus. And this finally is how the ancient promises have been fulfilled. Like Ezekiel 36, God says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove the heart of stone from your body and replace it with a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and make it possible for you to do what I tell you to and to live by my commands. Okay, so if the downward movement of baptism humbles us and addresses our shame, then the upward movement of baptism signals the Spirit. What the Son is to plants, what the Son of God is now to our souls. What the Son is to plants, the Son of God is by His Spirit to our souls. The Spirit warms our hearts, causes good fruit to grow within. So let's just get practical. Let's say you're hoping for some change. You're hoping for some change. Maybe less anger. Uh, maybe more self-control or, or, or generosity. What do you do? You follow the pattern of baptism. First, the way up is down. So you humble yourself. You recognize you are not faithful, but God is. You apply the gospel to your anger. You say, God, I am not loved in proportion to my self-control. I am not loved and righteous because I am so great. I am loved and righteous because you have given me your righteousness and taken my sin. Thank you. And then second, you seek the Spirit's empowerment. Lord, you have given me a new heart. You have put your Spirit within me. Let the Spirit descend on me again and raise me again to walk with you. Warm me with the light of your life. Teach me gentleness as you are gentle. You might want to go to counseling too. So his baptism means that we have solidarity with God. And we, second, we are saved and sanctified by God. But lastly, his baptism means that we are sons and daughters of God. The scene ends in, in Matthew 3, 17 with, with the voice of the Father from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Again, this is first and foremost a revelation of Jesus' identity. But let's consider it in view of our being united to Christ, the Son of God. Matthew 3.17 is spiritual dynamite. It is, it is laced with spiritual charges that, if detonated, can blow up your categories. First of, me, first of all, it means that salvation is not maybe, as you thought of it, primarily legal, pardon, or, or ethical. It means that salvation is primarily relational. Just as it was relationship that was lost in the fall that caused spiritual death and bodily death, it is relationship restored that is salvation. So my professor, Dr. Fairbairn, wrote a whole book about it called Life in the Trinity. And in it, he says this. 
Every other word or phrase we commonly associate with salvation, words like justification or a remission of sins or redemption or adoption, reconciliation, sanctification, these revolve around believers' union with Christ through the Holy Spirit. And then here are the key words. And thus the believers sharing in the Trinitarian relationship. This is one of the few passages where we see the Father and the Son and the Spirit all working together. Believers sharing in the Trinitarian relationship. This is salvation. When we are joined to Christ through baptism, we come to share in the same intimate relationship of eternal love that the Father has for the beloved Son. Put another way for you theologians in the room, take this a step deeper. Salvation is not something we attain because of Christ's ministry, but something we partake in that exists solely within Christ the Son. Salvation isn't something we attain. It's not something that's like wrapped up and given to us because of Christ's ministry. It's that we are given Christ. And in him, we have his relationship with the Father. This is true because salvation is to know God, but no one knows the Father but the Son. Through faith and baptism, Christ gives us himself. And in him, we participate in the love that he shares with the Father. And in him, the Father's words to the Son become words to us, to you and I. Pablo, Jenny, Lisa, Tim, you are my beloved son or daughter, and with you I am well pleased. This means a million things, but one of them is this. You are not your own. You belong body and soul and in life and death to God. You are God's child. And therefore, the entire modern project, which might be summarized as choose your own identity, it's, it's a shallow and disappointing adventure, ultimately. The, the modern cult of expressive individualism has a very short list of commandments, and there's only really one law that I think is written in stone. It is, you must craft your own identity. And this cult has left modern people with a very deep identity crisis. Who am I? You know, when identity is a creation of my own making, I must rapidly guard it and protect it and justify it you know, without, without an external and authoritative voice to bear witness to who I am, I'm, I will probably exhaust, exhaust myself just with identity upkeep, trying to prove to myself and to others that I'm enough. But these words to you, you are my son, you are my daughter, they give you your identity. They mean that there is no image for you to maintain because you're made in the image of God. They mean that there is no identity for you to discover or create because your identity is not in question. You are a child of God. You can relax. Rowan Williams, the Anglican theologian, captures the Christian understanding of identity this way, very beautifully. He says, you have an identity not because you have invented one or because you have a little hard core of selfhood that is unchanged, rather because you have a witness of who you are. What you don't understand or see, the bits of yourself you can't quite pull together into a cohesive story, these things are all held in a single gaze of love by God. So perhaps that's the invitation this morning, is to let this single gaze of love remind you of who you are as a child of God. In the baptism of Jesus, we have seen that, that we have solidarity with God, that we are saved and sanctified by God, and that he has given us his own name. He's made us his family, his children. This is where I'd like to leave us with this, this gaze of love. Um, 
someone gave me uh, Greg Boyle's Tattoos of the Heart um, as a Christmas gift, and it was reminded because I shared this, I think, several years ago, this story um, from the book. And it's a beautiful book. Boyle shares this. Um, He says, we all have a touchstone or, or a controlling image of God. And Boyle shares his, and it comes from his spiritual director, Bill Kane. Bill has taken a break from his ministry uh, to care for his father, who's passing away from cancer. And his father's become a frail man, dependent on Bill for everything. The disease has really caused his body to waste away, but his mind remains alert and very lively. And there's this role reversal that is common for those of you who maybe are older, where you are now caring for your dying parents. Bill would put his father to bed and then would read him to sleep, exactly as his father had done for him when Bill was a child. And Bill would read from some novel, and his father would lie there, staring at his son, smiling. And this is maybe hard for some of us who, the father, um, some of us have had good fathers, and some not so much. But Bill was exhausted from a day's work, and, and, and you know, he would plead with his dad, like Jenny and I plead with our kids, please go to bed. <laughs> please. Look, I've read you the chapter. I've read you two chapters. It's time for bed. Bill's father would sort of impishly apologize and dutifully close his eyes, but this would never last long, and soon enough, Bill's father would kind of pop one eye open and smile again at his son. Bill would catch him and again plead, come on, Dad, please, go to bed. The father would again oblige until he couldn't anymore, and the other eye would open to catch a glimpse of his son again. And this would go on and on and on. And after his father's death, Bill said that this evening ritual was was really a story of a father who just couldn't take his eyes off of his kid. How much more so with the Lord for us, with our Father? Boyle adds, what's what's true of Jesus is true for us. And so this voice breaks through the clouds and comes straight at us. You are my beloved, in whom I am wonderfully pleased. You are my beloved, in whom I am wonderfully pleased. Father, would you make that the, the song that centers us? Would you make that the a statue of liberty that we can look at and find refuge in? Uh, Would you use that to obliterate shame in us, to humble us, um, remind us of your solidarity with us? Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your humility, for swapping places with us. We're so grateful for giving us your righteousness. Apply these things to our hearts by your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.